Welcome to the latest episode of Rustlers Roundup. The At The Flicks team love westerns and in a series of pod shorts we talk about some of the best of the genre from our lifetime. We are presenting 20 audio essays on some of the greatest western movies of the last 60 years. Saddle up and ride along with Jeff the Kid, Itchy Trigger Finger Graham and Snake Eyes Neil. Today, we are looking back at Clint Eastwood's classic western, The Outlaw Josie Wales, a highly acclaimed movie which received an Oscar nomination for Jerry Fielding's music score. Gore and what a film. The Outlaw Josie Wales is quite simply Clint Eastwood's Western masterpiece. Hang on, what about Unforgiven? Oh yeah, that's a close second, but it doesn't have the word Wales in the title. <laughs> Good grief. Ignoring the racist angle there, all I'll say is, that's why Unforgiven won all those Oscars. So did driving Miss Crazy, if you want to drive down that road. Awards don't make movies great. Support from people like me do. Anyway, back to The Outlaw Josie Wales. It is a brutal yet elegiac film. The themes of redemption and reconciliation are as relevant now as they were back in 1976 when the feature was released. What is surprising is how well it all turned out. Rated as one of the great westerns of all time, when it had production problems that led to a change in the filmmaking code, and a bizarre connection to the Ku Klux Klan. No wonder you rate it so highly. Ignoring Johnny Reb in the corner, I will continue. For our Western completists, there are connections with other shows in this series. Check out Soldier Blue at the Flicks episode 92 and True Grit episode 97. We will point out the links as we go through. Uh, Firstly, let's remind you about the plot. Set during the American Civil War, Josie Wales is a Missouri farmer who lives with his wife and young son. That life is destroyed when they are attacked by Unionist militants led by Captain Terrell. Another great psychopathic performance from Bill McKinney. Remember him as the mountain man rapist in Deliverance. Squeal like a pig, boy! Thank you. Put too much emphasis on that and have clearly seen that film too many times, Graham. I hope you're not watching it for John Voight. <laughs> no, I hate that piece in that film. It's terrifying. If you too can forget your camping <laughs> trip and allow me to continue. After the brutal death of his wife and son, Josie Wells joins up with a Confederate bushwhacker and guerrilla fighter, Bloody Bill Anderson. After the war, their campaign ends and their now leader, Captain Fletcher, the great John Vernon, agrees a peace deal with the Union Army. Unknown to Fletcher, it's a trap. Only Wales and a badly wounded young man called Jamie get away. Jamie played by Sam Bottoms, who had a similar role in Apocalypse Now. As they are hunted down by Union soldiers, Josie swears vengeance on Fletcher for the betrayal. First, though, they must escape, and as this scene shows, there are plenty of locals who want to help him. So you'll be Josie Wales. How might you know that, Granny? Soldiers were here looking for you about two hours ago. 
I was going to mention that to you as soon as I got the chance. They say you killed your own men. You lying blue scumbellies. They say you're a hard-footing, desperate man, Josie Wales. They're going to heal and hide you to a barn door. You know what I say? What's that? I say that big talk's worth doodly squat. As Wales' journey continues, he comes into contact with more people, some who also want to help him, while others try to kill him for the bounty placed on his head. One of the helpers is Lone Wait, played by the wonderful Native American chief Dan George. Here is an excerpt from their first encounter. Howdy. Name's Josie Wales. I've heard of that name. Some said you'd be headed this way. And they said a man could get rich on reward money if he could kill you. Seems like you was looking to gain some money here. Actually, I was looking to gain an edge. I thought you might be someone who would sneak up behind me with a gun. Where'd you ever get an idea like that? Besides, it ain't supposed to be easy to sneak up behind an Indian. I'm an Indian, all right. But here in the nation, they call us the civilized tribe. They call us civilized because we're easy to sneak up on. White men have been sneaking up on us for years. Cherokee, huh? Yeah. They sneaked up on us and they told us we wouldn't be happy here. They said we would be happier in the nations. So they took away our land and sent us here. I have a fine woman and two sons, but they all died on the trail of tears. And now the white man is sneaking up on me. Ultimately, Josie ends up travelling with a motley group of collected individuals. Could this be the start of a new life for him, a redemption of sorts, or will the past in the shape of Captain Terrell catch up and end Wells's new life? The theme of redemption and healing is key within this film. It is as important today as when the film was made, or even when the film was set. Let's look at the story context first. The American Civil War was an incredibly brutal and divisive period. Our anti-hero, Josie Wales, is full of desire for revenge for the death of his family. So he joins forces with Bloody Bill Anderson against the Union and its sympathisers. To be clear, this isn't meant in the context of Bloody Jeff. As Neil and I often say, Anderson was a real-life brutal Confederate guerrilla fighter who technically could be called a terrorist. It is interesting that his exploits and that of Josie Wales are glossed over in the opening credits, as in reality, they were often cruel and brutal. That in no way excuses the Union side, who had their own brand of fighters and terrorists, as betrayed in the film by Bill McKinney's fictional character of Tyrrell. The brutality on both sides was horrendous and should not be easily forgiven or forgotten, as in reality, it wasn't. This division is picked up in other movies we have discussed. There is, for example, a scene in True Grit where Cogburn and Lebeef 
talk about their actions in the Civil War. And Cogburn viciously defends William Quantrill. In reality, Bloody Bill Anderson was one of Quantrill's raiders, a quaint name for a violent mob. In True Grit, the two men change the subject as it is something they will never agree on. In Josie Wells, there is an added layer to the hostility. As the film progresses, Wells rescues and then protects a family as they journey to Texas. The family was originally from Kansas. You would be hard-pressed to find two more opposing states in the Civil War than Missouri and Kansas, which saw some of the most vicious of the guerrilla fighting. In the words of one observer at the time, the Kansas-Missouri border was a disgrace even to barbarism. Yet despite all of this, the film has an optimistic ending where Josie Wales settles down with the family, putting his days of revenge and horror behind him, a beginning to the healing process. In the novel, it goes further. Josie Wales marries and has a son. Moving forward to when the outlaw Josie Wales was made, there you have another time of conflict within America. The film was in production during 1975 in the years that immediately preceded that. You had the end of another unsavoury war which splits America, Vietnam. The hatred between the supporters and detractors of that conflict was not as violent as in the aftermath of the Civil War, but it was bitter. That theme was a central reference to one of our other Western choices, Soldier Blue, and also our show on First Blood. There was also another crisis in America at the time, a political one brought about by Tricky Dicky, Richard Nixon and Watergate. In both cases, you were on one side or the other, and the country took a long time to heal afterwards. Films like The Outlaw Josie Wales were perfectly timed to address that conflict among Americans and the need to heal and resolve differences. And the film remains important today. We currently have major ideological splits in both America and the UK. Each side looks at each other with distrust, and there are many of us who share the aggrieved feelings of Josie Wales, although thankfully not for the same reasons, at least not yet. And whilst this is a fiction, its message of resolution and healing is an important one, which we must listen to if we are to move on. Back to the film. It is called The Outlaw Josie Wales, so that the moving on and resolution we have spoken about must be addressed through that character. As the film moves forward towards its climax, Wales has three confrontations to resolve, and each is completed in a very different way. As we have described in the beginning, he just wants revenge. That initially takes place off screen behind the credits so as not to lose sympathy for the character. During the course of the movie, Josie develops connections to other people. Slowly, this changes his outlook. Yet, in two of the three final confrontations, Josie is prepared to fight and die, mainly to protect his new family. This is most apparent in the first confrontation, the one with Comanche leader Ten Bears, played by Will Sampson, best known for playing the Indian in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Not Indian, they're Native Americans. You're beating your head against an old-fashioned brick wall there, Neil. Just let him continue. <laughs> Thank you, my unionist friends, or as they say today, politically correct acquaintances. Polite people. As I was saying before being rudely interrupted, Ten Bears and his tribe 
do not want the family settling near their camp. So Josie realizes he has to deal with this situation in the only way he knows how. A fully armed Josie Wales rides out to meet with ten bears. Here is some of their confrontation. I came here to die with you. I'll live with you. Dying ain't so hard for men like you and me. It's living, it's hard. And all you've ever cared about has been butchered or raped. Governments don't live together. People live together. Governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight. Well, I've come here to give you either one or get either one from you. I came here like this so you'll know my word of death is true and that my word of life is then true. Two warriors confront each other with mutual respect and make peace. No trust for governments or treaties, only for themselves. The second confrontation is with Tyrrell and his Union militia, who are determined to kill Josie Wales. Here, there is no reasoning, no peaceful resolution. Both sides are set in their ways, and this results in a kill or be killed battle, where a wounded Wales ends Tyrrell with his own sword. In effect, his own totem and representation of a now finished war. Finally, there is the third confrontation where Josie Wales meets Fletcher. Here, in a fairly oblique way, the two men acknowledge that the war is over and each must accept that and move on. This is an acknowledgement of the healing process. Going back to that first confrontation with Ten Bears, Jeff said that the film treats both the warriors equally, both Josie Wales and Ten Bears are men who have lost their families, been lied to by the authorities, and ultimately made their name through revenge and violent acts. It does not differentiate that one is white and the other a Native American. This non-judgmental approach equally applies to the character of Lone Waite, as portrayed by Chief Dan George. As a result, the outlaw Josie Wales is a highly praised film in the Native American community. Here's an excerpt from a Nightlord Josie Wells documentary that addresses this point. I thought that the Native American characters uh, were sensitively written. It gave Eastwood the opportunity in the movie to portray Native Americans in a way seldom seen. That right, this damn woman doing something like this to me. He wanted to cast real Native Americans. He made an extra effort to cast Dan George, Will Sampson, and myself. It was one of the first really strong uh, heroic portrayals of American Indian people. And it's good to see that happen because you, you show the backbone and you show the, the honesty of these people. It made them non-Indians. They were people. The Native Americans really embraced this film because they saw themselves on the screen. All of this becomes more fascinating when you consider the source material for the movie, based on a book called The Rebel Outlaw, Josie Wales, which was later retitled Gone to Texas, written by Cherokee novelist Forrest Carter, except he wasn't all he claimed to be. Forrest Carter is an alias for Asa Earl Carter, a man who had essentially tried to move away from his past and establish himself as a writer. All of this because in the 1950s, Carter had formed his own Ku Klux Klan chapter and worked with controversial politician George Wallace, 
Carter believed in segregation in American society and co-wrote the famous pro-segregation line, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. I guess he wrote the word segregation. After a failed election bid to become governor of Alabama on a racist ticket, using slogans like free our white children, Carter moved to Texas and started writing novels. No one made the connection between Forrest and Asa when the novel was optioned and filmed. It was only afterwards that the truth came out. One suspects that may have been the reason that Clint Eastwood dropped plans for a sequel based on Carter's book, The Vengeance Trail of Josie Wales. That said, a sequel was made a few years later called The Return of Josie Wales, starring Michael Parks in the Clint Eastwood role. It was poorly received and quickly forgotten. While the filmmakers distanced themselves from the author, it is interesting to note that the hero of the film, Josie Wales, fought on the pro-slavery and anti-government Confederate side This distrust of government runs through the film. It is illustrated best in the reference to the treatment of the Native Americans or the politicians who planned the killing of the rebels at the beginning of the movie. As the outlaw Josie Wales is such a good movie, you can be forgiven for thinking the only problems this film had were with its source material. In fact, there were problems on set which caused such a stir that new filmmaking rules had to be introduced. Originally, the director was Philip Kaufman, who would later direct The Right Stuff. He developed the script with fellow writer Michael Cimino, who had just directed Eastwood in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, and is uncredited for his work here. Both downplayed some of Carter's excesses in the original novel, but highlighted the authentic dialogue of the period. Kaufman completed all the pre-production work, script, casting, location finding, etc., and principal photography began in October 1975. Over the course of the next few weeks, relations between Philip Kaufman and Clint Eastwood broke down. There were many reasons for this, some the subject of gossip, but also of working practices. Kaufman is a thoughtful, detail-focused director who can take his time. Eastwood, who had already directed a number of movies up to this point, was well prepared and fast. Those two styles clashed and in the end Kaufman was fired with Clint Eastwood taking over the additional role of director as well as starring. As Philip Kaufman had prepared the film and set the tone, the Directors Guild of America stepped in. They fined Warner Brothers about $60,000 for this unwarranted firing. In addition, a new rule was introduced by the Guild which stopped an actor or producer firing a director once production was underway and then replacing them with themselves. This ruling is known to this day as the Eastwood Rule. Once that clash had been resolved, the rest of the filming went smoothly, although some members of the production crew maintained that Clint Eastwood just followed the blueprint laid out by Philip Kaufman. The end result was a major box office hit for Clint Eastwood, then one of the top box office draws in the world, and a critical hit as well. As we said at the beginning of the show, it was nominated for one Oscar. That was for Jerry Fielding and his music score.
You will notice this is not a usual type of Western score. None of the expansive themes you would find from Aaron Copeland or Elmer Bernstein, not even the south of the border flourishes you would get with Jerry Goldsmith. This is functional and in keeping with the darker tone of the movie. Interestingly, the main title theme, which we played at the beginning and will repeat at the end of the show, has that upbeat going into battle style, but that is different from much of the score, which is better represented by the track Final Revenge, which we just played. Clint Eastwood was certainly impressed by Jerry Fielding's style. He used him for the majority of his films after this, including The Enforcer and The Gauntlet, continuing up until Jerry's early death in 1980. While the score has always been highly regarded, the film has become more so over the years that followed. In 1996, it was added to the United States Library of Congress. Clint Eastwood has said of the film that it is certainly one of the high points of my career. For me, I would put it higher than Unforgiven. It might be a brutal film in parts, yet it has great characters and showcases Clint's laconic humour at its best. So there you go. A brutal film about reconciliation, which makes you laugh and is still relevant today. What more do you want? Thanks for that, Jeff. Let's check out what our listeners and other contributors think about the outlaw Josie Wales. From Paul, a fantastic Western and one of Eastwood's best. It also has some fantastic one-liners such as Dying Ain't Much of a Living Boy. It's essentially a revenge movie, but it has much more to it. A great film. From Simon, while he agrees with Paul that it is a superficially a revenge movie, it is also a movie with many themes. The journey where he collects a disparate group along the way where all of them have been affected by conflict in some way. This suggests an anti-war movie. And Phil, a very entertaining Western with a great story, features an excellent performance by Eastwood. And from Darren, it could pass for a post-apocalyptic Western with a harsh landscape devastated by a brutal war, leaving roaming gangs attacking and raping families. You can't help but read a Vietnam subtext here, but with a soldier forever scarred by years at war, but in a reversal on the lone man with no name, who builds himself a family of misfits. And professional critics say, Roger Ebert, it's a strange and daring Western. And Ian Nathan of Empire Magazine said, a truly great Western from Clint Eastwood that is bleak, atmospheric and charming in turns. Orson Welles said, it belongs with the great Westerns of Ford and Hawks and people like that. Orson Welles saw the film four times on its initial release. The Native American website called it a great film and one of the all-time great Westerns, certainly Eastwood's best film. So there you go. If we have now persuaded you to check this out or revisit it again, please let us know what you think. In the meantime, we will play out with some more of Jerry Fielding's Oscar-nominated score for The Outlaw Josie Wales. Okay, Neil, as they say in the movie, don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. Enough talk, let's ride. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.